Sarah from The Journey and welcome to another podcast special. Now sometimes on the podcast we deal with some relatively tricky subject matter and today's expert special is no exception. Today we're going to be talking about miscarriage. Now unfortunately miscarriage is a fact of life, however it can be a devastating fact of life for some of those that it impacts, particularly if it happens repeatedly. Now the good news is There are some pretty awesome experts out there that are pioneering and breaking through boundaries, trying to find out what many of the root causes are and most importantly, what we can do about it. And today's special guest is exactly that. So we sit down and we're lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Hassan Shiata, who is actually a recurrent miscarriage specialist. So Dr. Shiata is also medical director and founder of the Center for Reproductive Immunology and Pregnancy Miscarriage Clinic. And his research is certainly pioneering and increasingly goes against the established notions behind why this happens to some people. And in fact, his rates of success are nothing short of astounding. So we wanted to discover what exactly he does that's so different, why he thinks there are serious question marks about some of the traditional approaches and why he thinks his approach works for so many people. So, without further ado, over to Dr. Hassan. Is are you seeing more miscarriage, or are you not? So, uh, I'm definitely seeing more miscarriages, but I think the main reason for that is because people have become probably uh, more uh, confident and um, in reporting it compared to probably even 10 to 20 years ago. So I don't think the incidence has increased. I think people have become more aware of it. Uh, um, also, I think with the, the, the new developments with pregnancy tests, um, the sensitivity of the pregnancy test has become quite high and therefore people are detecting, particularly with what they call chemical pregnancies, yeah, say, detecting them quite early, mm-hmm. while in the past they might not have known they were pregnant and they may have been assumed to have had delayed fertility uh, rather than miscarriages so that's another thing and actually interesting I was speaking to one of my patients one of my patients today she was saying why are we now seeing more and more missed miscarriages but the reason for that as well because we're doing earlier and earlier scans and also the accessibility which is, has changed both on the NHS and, and the private sector so in the good old days 15-20 years ago I think it was very rare for any woman to have an excess for a scan before 12 weeks. And therefore, they may miscarry well before they know they have been pregnant or miscarry before they've had the scan. And by the, com- by the time they come for 12 weeks, there are going to be very few numbers. Now we're picking up the, the pregnancy loss very, very early because if somebody has recorded miscarriages and we've seen them at six weeks and at six weeks we're seeing that the findings are not compatible with what we expect it to be, you can diagnose a miscarriage as early as that. So you don't think there's any impact for the fact that we're all getting older when we're having kids and then chromosomally some of the eggs that we have may not be the best? There is a possibility of that. I'm not sure that is responsible for recurrent miscarriages. Certainly we know as women get older, the risk of miscarriage due to chromosomal abnormalities is higher. Men slightly different, I think, the issues with chromosomal abnormality-related miscarriages and men is probably well above the age of 60. So for women, we know when they hit 40, 
the miscarriage rate becomes much higher. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, however, I think it's a good question, I have to say, Sarah. I might want to look at maybe profiling that in our patients because um, we've now looked at data for about 2,000 women. I think I need to look at the age and see what happens, uh, kind of, are we seeing a difference in my publications uh, or my findings in the previous studies? Yes, women are definitely postponing getting pregnant and therefore they have a, a, a lower chance of falling pregnant with, because with age and if they fall pregnant, there's a slight increased risk of miscarriage. Is that solely a reason to have recurrent miscarriages? No. Would that contribute to maybe to slight increase in miscarriage? Maybe, but I don't think anybody has the numbers. Okay. Certainly, I look at my list, for example, today, um, I have a 34, 34, 32, 33, 37, and 37. And then I have a 42, and a 42, and a 46. Yes, yeah, so no one in their 20s. Nobody, no, nobody is in their 20s. Yeah. Uh, no, we're not seeing a lot of women in their 20s. I think that's a fact. But I, I'm not sure that was the case 10 years ago. I can't remember that. Okay. Uh, well, I'd definitely be interested in any more findings you have on that. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about how your approach is different because you have some amazing results and you also have a slightly different way of approaching recurrent miscarriage. So yeah. can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. So my, my approach is mainly to have a, um, if you like, um, uh, what's the word, kind of like a wholesome kind of approach. So Holistic? Holistic approach. So both from... Which I love, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> So both from the female and the male partners. So traditionally, nobody looks at the man. Mm. The good, the kind of, the, the traditional way of teaching is if a sperm is good enough to achieve a pregnancy, it's good enough to carry on with the pregnancy, which is really no scientific basis for that whatsoever. Um, when we look at fertility, a third of the causes is a male factor, a third is a female factor, and a third is what we call unexplained. But when it comes to miscarriages, we ignore the male factor completely, which doesn't make sense. So we know uh, that males definitely contribute to miscarriages, especially sperm DNA fragmentation, which is how much DNA damage within the sperm. So traditionally for fertility patients, we do something called semen analysis. How many sperms, what they look like, and how they swim. However, what we're looking at from a miscarriage point of view is how much damage is within the sperm. And is this caused by oxidative stress primarily? Correct. Correct. And how much would you say that is a function of lifestyle, a modern lifestyle? A big, big, I'm not sure about modern lifestyle, because right. modern lifestyle should be good. In theory. In theory. Certainly, things that affect it, smoking, um, possibly vaping, we don't really know. Um, because it's interesting now, I'm seeing more and more patients who vape rather than smoke. Oh, that is interesting. In, um, especially in the males. Uh, alcohol, uh, excessive exercise in a way that with anything that heats the scrotum, so excessive cycling, there's some evidence to lead to that. Uh, you know, the hot bath, the hot tub, the hot, uh, kind of all these kind of things that people, saunas, they can affect that. Of course, people's occupation, so if you drive a long time, etc. So there are certain uh, evidence and 
age as well can contribute to that. So that's one area that, for example, I do differently from other people. I know, for example, Tommy's campaign have already put about two million pounds for a research in sperm DNA fragmentation, and we are going to be one of the centres. Okay. Um, for that, is uh, the the main hub will be in Birmingham, uh, and that's recruiting um, inf um, male partners um, to look at the effect of that. So we'll have to wait to see what the outcome of that. But at the moment, it's something we investigate and we treat. The other different things from a female point of view, historically and traditionally, people used to think that the sticky blood or thrombophilias is the main cause of miscarriage, of recurrent miscarriage. The main cause of a miscarriage is a chromosomal abnormality, but of recurrent miscarriages is thought to be thrombophilias. There's been a lot of investigations looking into that, and I don't believe that is the case. Can you just first explain what is a thrombophilia? So a thrombophilia screen is a group of uh, markers that um, so let's go back a little bit so in order for our blood to run properly we have to have factors that makes our blood thin and factors that make our blood sticky and that balance between thin and sticky is keeps it running around pumping around nourishing all our cells and if we cut our hand by a knife while we're cooking it's enough to stick it up and heals it and not to bleed to death Interestingly, when a woman falls pregnant, the blood stickiness goes up by about two to three times, even before a woman discovers that she's pregnant. Which is, I guess, why there's the DVT risk on planes and Correct. clotting risk. Correct. And there was a nice kind of computer model study that was done a long time ago, where they have um, simulated if that the blood doesn't have these changes in pregnancy, they anticipated between 30 to 50% of women would have died at the time of delivery. Wow. At the time of birth. So that stickiness allows a woman not to have a severe hemorrhage at the time of birth. Now, so any stickiness that is pre-existing added to the stickiness that happens with pregnancy, then it is thought that will cut the blood supply and cause a miscarriage. But let's look at the facts. So a thrombophilia screen consists of 80% of it is genetically uh, acquired, so it's genetically inherited, and 20% is acquired. The genetically inherited are mainly factors like factor 5 Leiden, something called factor 2, which is prothrombin mutation, protein S deficiency, protein C deficiency, antithrombin 3 deficiency, so there's a lot of these tests. And then the acquired is lupus anticoagulant, anticardiolipin antibody, and something called beta-2 glycoprotein. There is now clear evidence that the inherited thrombophilias have no relationship to miscarriages. Wow. There's been several small studies, but we have um, presented uh, our data in June in the Royal College World Congress, and we have showed uh, on 2,000 samples of women that the prevalence of these hereditary thrombophilias is the same in the miscarriage population compared to the general population. So we categorically com uh, conf confirm that there is no increased prevalence of this during uh, along, uh, sorry, uh, on um, miscarriage population. There has been lots of studies looking at the treatment for these patients and which so is blood mainly aspirin or, or blood thinners, aspirin or fragment or clexin, etc. all these blood thinners, and there has been evidence that it doesn't work. There is no benefit. There is so that's for 80%? Correct. 
of people. No, no, this is the thrombophilia, the hereditary thrombophilia. Right. So we're talking with the classification of the thrombophilia. Right, got you. Okay. And uh, what we have also, there's a currently a trial known uh, as A-Life 2, and that's looking at women with this hereditary thrombophilia being given blood thinners like fragment or clexane versus nothing, and we're awaiting the results, but it looks like there is no evidence of benefit. The acquired thrombophilia, which is the antiphospholipid syndrome, I also think it's an over-exaggerated cause of miscarriage because I can tell you yesterday I saw a patient who was diagnosed with that pretty confidently and being given the blood thinners, but she still miscarried. Interesting. Now, when you say acquired, so obviously inherited, we all know what that means, but acquired... Acquired, it just happens. It, it switches on. Okay, so, so it's an epigenetic correct. function. Correct. Okay. So it just happens... And antiphospholipid syndrome is the main cause or number one cause of young adults stroke and young adult DVTs and pulmonary embolisms. Ah, okay. Okay. But in the general population, it affects 0.4% in some studies. And, and in some other studies, they think it is as low as 0.04%. Wow. Okay. So it's quite rare. Mm. Now, on miscarriage studies, it seems it hovers around the range between 1.5 and 2% of patients of miscarriages will, will have antiphospholipid syndrome. Therefore, we have a 98% population with no diagnosis. So this assumption that sticky blood is a major cause is not right because we have taken out the hereditary thrombophilias. The factor V ligand, which is about 4% of the population, the prothrombin gene mutation, which is 3% of the population. So even when you add them up, they were all about 10%. Wow. Okay. They were not really no. high, but now it's actually only 2% should be receiving blood thinners. What do we do with the other 98%? Yeah. Okay. And that's, that's where I come different. in. Correct. Yeah. This is what my theory is here. So is a chromosomal abnormality going to happen recurrently in a patient who's five or six miscarriages? No, statistically, very unlikely. Yeah. Can hormonal imbalances, such as abnormal thyroid, abnormal prolactin, polycystic ovaries, cause such a high number of miscarriages? Extremely unlikely, because in order for you to have such a severe endocrinological disorder, you will be very ill. So, for example, if you have a severe thyroid underactivity, you actually become infertile. Yeah. You don't become pregnant. You see what I mean? Of course, and I guess the same with PCOS as Correct. well. Correct. So I, therefore, one has to refocus our attention. Is What else can cause a miscarriage? So that's where the immune system comes in. And that's where there is lots of controversy. Now, my argument is, well, assume that the immune system has no role in miscarriages. So what else is causing these women to have recurrent miscarriages? We know it's not sticky blood because that's only 2% of the population of miscarriages. We know it is not uh, hormonal abnormalities, but because hormonal abnormalities, 20% of recurrent miscarriages, and you can't really justify somebody with 12 miscarriages to, to be due to something like that. But even if you add that, that's 20 to 22%. What is going to happen to the other 80%? Yeah. And we can't I just say we can't have any other reason for that. And I presume if you even suspected hormonal imbalance, you'd have had a test for that anyway. And you'd be treated for it, exactly. Yeah. And therefore, what do we do with the other 
80 or 90 percent of women and that's where i think we people have to come off their kind of uh, ivory horses whatever you call it at the high horses and and accept that the immune system has an important role now we know the immune system has an important role in pregnancy because how in earth does a woman not reject that embryo which has foreign genetic material coming from the father and nowadays with egg donation yeah. completely foreign yeah. but it doesn't get rejected so we now know that things like natural killer cells something called toll like receptors toll is t o l like receptors they are important they have an important role in managing the pregnancy to protect the pregnancy from being recognized as foreign body and the theory we have with the immune system and that's certainly the theory i have is that in some women these natural killer cells are aggressive or higher in number but mostly more aggressive in function and wrongly identifies the pregnancy as foreign and attack it and cause a miscarriage similar principle as a condition like rheumatoid arthritis what happens with rheumatoid arthritis or celiac or, celiac. or any other autoimmune exactly so the immune yeah. system attacks the own body thinking it's foreign and that's what it is about so that's where the first controversy about um, immune system acceptance or not and I think I, I think the way I explain it is that well assume I'm wrong what are the other reasons you can't just say sticky bloods we only know it's two percent we can't say chromosomal abnormalities we can't say hormonal abnormalities so there must be something else what is it what else so that's one thing now the other issue we have is how do we diagnose them and how do we treat them the diagnosis I think people have now moved on from where we were attacked 10-15 years ago saying that we are making things up and we're quack doctors uh, now people accept that the immune system plays a role but now there is controversy about how we test them should we do endometrial testing or do we do blood testing so again we have published several papers in this and we have moved away from natural killer cell counting we mainly look at the function numerically assessed of course but it's a function and we said actually counting natural killer cells not that reliable we have found that it differs from patients at different stages of the cycle difference from the same stage of the cycle being in different times of the month so it's how aggressive the cells actually are correct and we have consistently shown that what the levels are so we have published a paper on something called cd69 activity and actually we're the first people in the world to establish what the normal level is and uh, and that's a measure of the I guess, aggression aggression of the natural killer cells and so that's one thing. Endometrial sampling, the, li the lining of the womb is very fragile. Once you touch it, you'll have blood. So it's contaminated with blood. And therefore, you can't really differentiate between endometrial measurement of natural killer cells and blood measurement of natural killer cells. And I have seen from my colleagues who do this test in Warwickshire, patients who have shown me the results, repeated months, big difference between 2% to 30%. We don't see that in activity. Yeah. So that tells you the unreliability of the test. The third issue is about treatment. Now, I think where I have maybe created a revolution in treatment, because I was the first person in the world to start treatment preconception. Because everybody else, historically, if you look at previous studies, even with this, the thrombophilia problem, sticky bloods, people were giving heparin at positive pregnancy test, aspirin at positive pregnancy test. Now people have moved on because I have said, we need to give aspirin preconception. People were not doing that. Mm. 
And the same applies to the immune system because the immune system is active all the time and it doesn't play fair. So it's not like a referee waiting for the match to start for a woman to do a pregnancy test and then it attacks. It will attack before a woman discovers that she's pregnant. So when a lady discovers that she's pregnant, if she already has a high immune aggression, would have attacked the pregnancy already and it's too late to start a positive pregnancy test. So I have created a program of starting treatment preconception. Can I just ask then, um, this whole notion of, you know, our immune systems firing, I guess, too aggressively and, and coming back to the whole modern trends that we're seeing. Mm. So some of the things that some people are linking many chronic illnesses to is this persistent chronic inflammation that's within yeah. the body. And some people are also linking that to many of our modern lifestyle choices and all the kind of environmental factors that we're, you know, exposed to, be it the food, be it, you know, all the kind of different things that never existed, you know, 50 years ago. So what you're saying here is not necessarily that it's the number of cells. It is a, so it's therefore not chronic inflammation that causes this. It's actually a specific aggression within these killer cells and does that therefore mean that you're more likely to have miscarriage if you have other autoimmune conditions good question we haven't seen that necessarily because not all the patients we find that they have high natural killer cells have a history of autoimmune personal or family history and vice versa so people with autoimmune history we have in all fun they have an autoimmune they have a high natural killer cells so i don't think that is necessarily the case of a natural killer cells, but we know chronic immune conditions can also lead to miscarriages. Yeah. Just with the fact with their own antibodies. For example, there's a high risk of miscarriages with high thyroid antibodies, high gliadin antibodies with celiac disease, yeah. etc. Okay, so how do you treat somebody? Like so the most thing? important thing, so the principle of treatment, really Sarah, is really important. Number one principle is preconception treatment. So if somebody asks me what has made a huge difference in our success rate is preconception treatment, okay? And continuation of the treatment to a stage when we feel it is safe to do so. So for the commonest type of miscarriage, which is the first trimester loss, we normally start weaning off the treatment around 12 weeks because by 12 weeks, both the baby and the placenta have started to produce their own kind of immune calming substances. Now on this preconception treatment, and obviously what you started off saying was that a third of the patients um, who have issue with infertility are male. But I'm presuming that given that the male issue is more DNA fragmentation, then you do a different treatment Correct. for the men than you would for the women. And, ha- and so what exactly is this treatment that you start? So, so, so for the woman, their preconception medication, and that depends. Mostly we use steroids, yeah. okay, which is prednisolone. And prednisolone is a very safe drug. It doesn't, it's, most of it doesn't cross the placenta and there's enough evidence that it is safe for pregnancy. So this old notion of it increases the risk of cleft lip and palate is nonsense, not founded at all. Um, and I have never seen any, and I've been treating people for a very long time. Um, and of course, the new classification now says that there is no risk. Another drug we use is something called hydroxychloroquine. That's something I discovered as well. Hydroxychloroquine is an immune modulator. It's uh, mainly used for conditions like lupus. It's also a malaria drug. Mm. Um, and then other drugs we use, something called GCSF. I'm going to give you the leaflets for these drugs. 
and um, intralipids. And would this be the same kind of drugs that you would give to someone who um, has no natural killer cells or no, non-aggressive killer cells, but who's getting egg donation? Because there is, in many cases, people that are having egg donation have in some form of immunosuppressants alongside that. No, they don't. They don't? No. Okay. No. Okay, so no. this is something completely no. separate. No. Okay. And um, so that would be obviously the treatment that you'd start for somebody who's you know a female who's doing preconception now what about on the male side how do you so on the male side treat the treat depends on how severe the abnormality is so the first thing you do is test obviously. test first yeah and then i have a colleague of mine mr steve gordon who's a male fertility specialist who works with me closely and we assess the result so the result will have three parameters we look at something called the uh, low comet score which is where we'd like the sperm's to come from. So the low comet score uh, basically is the green, sorry, is the good type sperms where we'd like the pregnancy to come from. Then there is something called the high comet score. These are the kind of the mostly damaged sperms. And then there's the one in the middle, which is the average, okay? So you can't choose the sperm. So what we do, we try to improve these green ones or the low ones by changing lifestyle, and do further investigation. So we'll do a urine test to see if there's any hidden infections, like chlamydia, for example. And we also do scrotal scans to look for evidence of varicose veins, for example, mm -hmm. that increase heat around the scrotum. There are a few tricks we do as well, is we give um, medications. So there are two options. You can either re give ready-made antioxidants. We've actually chose to go for with, a, with medications that makes your body makes its own antioxidants. So that would be something like an N-acetylcysteine. Yes, yeah. so we mainly use something called condensal or Impril because what these do, we have seen evidence that if you take uh, antioxidants that you don't need, it can cause further damage to the sperms. So we, that's why we use that as a first line. It's still a very gray area and I'm trying to now develop with the lab more testing to enable us choose which medications should we should give to each, each patient. So when you test the level of antioxidant in the blood, do you test... We don't do the level of antioxidant. You don't, no. okay. No, no, because it's different from that. Okay, so how... that's in the sperms. Yeah, okay, right. So there is something called oxidative stress test. It's called a yeah. ROS test or that we do for sperms. But we're trying to develop that a little bit further. But that's not something you test the blood. That has to be tested in the sperm. Correct. Got it. Okay. Now... Um, so you look at the sugar content. That will tell us what the stress is. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, so basically if a couple comes to you, you assess the sperm, you obviously try and ascertain whether or not there's some very aggressive cells within the woman. You start tests. You start this treatment before. Correct. And your success rate is... It's about 80%. It's wow. super. It's really good. And um, uh, we haven't published that yet, but as I said, we're now f finishing off the, 20, the 2,000 women that we have, uh, the data. Uh, but we have a very good success rate. And, and those who miscarry in our treatment program, if we manage to do a procedure and set the process of conception for genetic testing, 80 to 90% of them come back as chromosomal abnormalities, right. which proves that the treatment hasn't failed. Yeah. So there's just bad luck that mm -hmm. you're in that Or cycle. age or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Now, the other thing is, um, some people have this uh, genetic um, trait, which means that they cannot actually absorb folic acid. 
Um, we've obviously discussed this. Yeah, we've discussed this before, and you said that that's not really significant enough. But if you did have that abnormality and you didn't have aggressive killer cells, could that be a reason why you would have issues if you were taking folic acid and you? Um, no, is the answer. I'm I'm quite categorical about this. First of all. 40% of the population are carriers for MTHFR. Yeah. We don't see recurrent miscarriage in 40%. Exactly, yeah. So that itself, statistically, tells you that's not an abnormality. If half the people have it, it's not an abnormality. That's number one. So we move to the second group, which is the homozygous. So this is the heterozygous. The homozygous means that they missed both sides of the gene. I haven't seen any paper or any evidence to show that there is a... Re- that that can cause recurrent miscarriages. However, I do treat my patients with the homozygous with extra folic acid. Would you do it in methylfolate or would you? Again, there is no evidence to give this or that. Okay. So methylfolate is fine, but it is equally fine to give a high dose folic acid because if you give a high dose folic acid, then then will be enough of it to push itself in. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Now, also, this might be a little bit more out there, but um, you're talking a lot about the immune system, autoimmunity, and, of course, the explosion in research that's happened with the microbiome and its effect on immunity is something that's like going on and has evolved. Do you have any views about that and whether or not somebody who had these kind of aggressive cells or an autoimmune condition could really start and look at addressing perhaps gut dysbiosis or... Or do you think that the science just isn't there yet? The science isn't there yet, but certainly it's an area I'm interested in. And actually, it's one of the kind of to-do things for me this year, which I haven't done yet, because I, am, I have great relationship with Professor Catherine Williamson at um, St. Thomas's, who uh, has done a lot of work with that and something I'm going to try to explore with her. I'd love to meet her. <laughs> Um, to see what we can do with regard to recurrent miscarriages. Nobody looked at it, to be honest. Mm. But certainly it's an area uh, that is of, uh, uh, of interest to me as well. So yes, I think there will be something because um, it looks like it's affecting lots of other th- autoimmune issues and I can't see why it wouldn't have an effect on that. But I don't think... We're not there we need, yet. We need, yeah, we need to think what the issue is, would be and how we diagnose it. Is going to be the second step mm. and then we can take it from there but that's certainly an, an, a very well thank you so much mr shiata we really really appreciate your time and if anyone listening wants to get in touch with mr shiata directly check out his clinic and in fact the links are provided on the article on our site so check out thejourney.com or if you wanted to reach out to us direct you can absolutely do that info at thejourney.com and we will pass anything on Um, And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate and give us a review. And if you've got anything, any other interesting topics or subjects you'd like to uh, think about or to be featured, please do get in touch. And if not, we will see you next week.